Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Uh, today it is October 16th of 2014. Our guest is a New York Times bestselling author, David Sheff. He's the author of Clean, Overcoming Addiction and Ending America's Greatest Tragedy. We're going to bring him on in just one second here. First, we're going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits. From safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether, our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, David Chef, is with us. We're going to bring him on right now. How are you doing, David? Well, I'm good, Kenneth. Thank you so much for having me on, and thanks for doing this great uh, service for all these people out here, all of us who need need it. Well, it's it's great to have you here. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your book. Uh, Why were you motivated to write this book? Well, when I was... uh, I was sort of like most people or many people up here in the in the world in the country who was going on in my life had no thoughts about addiction um at all. I did not have addiction in my in my family, no alcoholism. Uh but we were blindsided like like others are and my son, um, my eldest son, Nick, became addicted when he was a teenager and we spent about ten years in hell, uh, trying to figure out what it meant that he was addicted and what to do about it. Um, as a journalist, I finally was clean for a while, and I decided to go into this world and to try to understand as much as I could uh, and to write about it. And it, it you know, there, were, there were a pair of books. The first one was called Beautiful Boy, and that was about our family's experience. And then I went forward and wrote the newer book called Clean, which really is about the science of addiction and about the problems that are caused by addiction throughout the country, and mostly, you know, what we can better do to prevent addiction and to treat it. Well, let's talk a little bit about treatment. Um, are all addiction treatment programs equal? Are some better than others? Well, it's, all addiction programs are absolutely not equal. Uh, there are appalling programs out there, and I've, uh, I can tell you firsthand, like my, my I spent a lot of money and time and, and, and emotion uh, investing in programs that turned out to be uh, terrible. Um, I didn't know at the time because I was just a parent who was trying to figure out what to do to help my son to save his life. And most people in that position are the same. Uh, we just don't know. Uh, many programs that I went to used treatment paradigms that just are completely outdated have been shown in some cases not to work. They were often about sort of brutality and harshness and yelling at patients and trying to get patients to conform to certain ideas. So there was a program in which Nick uh, participated where if he didn't make his bed properly, they had him and other kids as their adolescents go out into the grass in the winter and cut cut the grass with scissors um, as if that's going to help somebody who's struggling with something as serious as addiction. So... Now, both programs actually are uh, inadequate. Uh, we know now that there are a lot of effective treatments for alcoholism addiction, um, but 
the numbers of people who are actually trained in them and the number of the programs that offer them are very, very few. Uh, and it's a tragedy because it's hard enough to get someone to go into treatment. It's hard enough to go into treatment yourself if, if, if you know, we need it. But um, then to go into a program after all that and to get that treatment, I mean, no wonder the relapse rate after treatment is so high. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and if one starts looking at the spontaneous remission at natural recovery, we find um, there's, there's actually really large rates of spontaneous remission and natural recovery. They do take a long time to come about. Um, I was just reading the half-life on things like cannabis and cocaine are, you know, five, four to six years. Um, alcohol dependence is 14. Nicotine dependence is 26. It can take a long time to do it on your own, but, uh, you know, kind of, I think... You know, my feeling is that a good treatment program would work with the forces of natural recovery of spontaneous remission, and some of them seem to be uh, diametrically opposed to that. Many of them. In fact, maybe even most of them are. Um, first of all, you know, we know this is a problem that develops over the course of, of, of a lifetime, many, many, many years, and so the idea that you know, there are programs that purport to treat an addict in, you know, whatever it is, a week, two weeks, some of them say, you know, give us your kid for 10 days and they'll send them back drug-free, you know, 28 days. You know, it's, it's absurd. I mean, these are serious, deep psychological problems. And many of them also come from an old-fashioned uh, model that says that there's only one way for people to get sober and to stay sober. Um, they reject any sort of harm reduction, um, you know, either you know, uh, you're clean or you're not clean, uh, many of them reject psycho um, pharmaco- pharmacology, and we know there's a lot of research that shows that there are certain kinds of addiction medications that help people get sober and stay sober. Um, so it's it's a very very flawed system, and it's rooted in a time when there really wasn't much else to try. I mean, we just didn't know what else uh, might help. Uh, we did not have the knowledge of, of the brain, the neurological system, the impacts of addiction on them biological system, and we didn't have this arsenal of proven treatments um, uh, that, that actually do work, and, and this understanding, as you say, that sometimes things evolve on their own and how we can encourage that and how we can uh, minimize the chance of relapse and how we can um, bolster a person, not only in terms of their specific likelihood of, you know, of relapsing, but also uh, bolster a person when we look at their whole life and we understand what their vulnerabilities are and what might lead to relapse, because oftentimes, of course, we have a very simplistic view that we think that people who are using just want to get high, but you know, we also now know that most people who become seriously addicted uh, have other problems. They're having, they have psychological disorders. Um, they have learning difficulties. They've suffered traumas, and drugs turn out to be, for them, um, a way... That's a belief, which, of course, we all know doesn't work all the time, but it does work at the, at the moment sometimes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you know, one of the really promising things I've seen in New York City and New York State in particular is uh, they're now teaching a lot about uh, overdose prevention and naloxone, Narcan, uh, in the rehab programs. It's uh, many of the rehab programs have introduced this, and since, you know, relapse is common, 
after treatment, uh, it's really it's important to keep people alive so that they don't die. Yeah, it's true, and it's amazing to me that people resist that, that there is so much resistance among certain, you know, kinds of people and certainly, certainly certain kinds of more conservative politicians, you know, this idea that if you have medications that could save someone's life, you're actually encouraging them to to use, you know, the idea that, you know, if you get an overdose on heroin, um, and, you know, we can stop that, is going to stop you from um, encouraging you to use. I mean, that's absurd. That's a complete misunderstanding of what it means to be an addict. And of course, we want to save people's lives um, in any way that we can. And that's one of the promising steps forward throughout the country, that uh, naloxone, Narcan, is being made available. In fact, now uh, it's going to be available in a very... I actually tried to get there recently because I hanging out with a lot of people who are using them, and I wanted to be prepared in case I ever am in a situation where someone is, um, is overdosing on an opiate until I um, I had someone give me a prescription to get some naloxone to get an injector, but it was going to cost $875. So uh, obviously not very uh, practical for most people. But now there are... Um, new forms that are being available. It's going to be available to anyone at a pharmacy. Um, instructions on how to use it by a pharmacist uh, and, and relatively cheap. I think it's going to be about $40 for, uh, for one injector. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I know in New York City, um, uh, most of the needle exchange programs, if not all of them, they will do Narcan training. They will give you a Narcan kit for free. I've been trained. I have my kit. Uh, it didn't cost me anything. So, yeah, I have Narcan in my backpack. I carry it with me everywhere I go. That's great. Well, I plan on doing that, too. Uh, I guess I haven't found the right place to get it yet. Yeah, check with uh, the exchanges, the needle exchanges, or the harm reduction therapy center, perhaps. Um, that's probably the, the where they're doing the trainings, because I think it's available, the same thing, in California, as far as I know. That's right. Well, I will. Yeah, I actually have some, been to some needle exchanges in the Bay Area, and unfortunately they don't, um, they, they don't yet, at least, um, uh, do um, Narcan. They don't offer that. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm not sure... Yeah, I'm much more uh, in touch with the with uh, New York City, of course, where I've been living. I, I, well, I think it's for, changing. Uh, I think that. Um, mm-hmm. I was just saying, I think it's changing. I think around the country, people are being educated to the fact that you know Narcan saves lives, and there's a lot of other things that are being done that suggest that people are getting it. I mean, I think it's about now 12 states that have enacted the 911 Good Samaritan laws. Um, I've heard from many, many parents around the country who have lost their kids, and they said that they lost their kids because they were at a party, friends, whatever. They were all um, either, you know, they were taking pills, oxycontin, Vicodin, and, and shooting heroin usually, uh, and someone overdoses and, and becomes unconscious, and nobody does anything. They don't call 911 because the other kids think that they're going to get arrested, and in fact, they probably would get arrested. And so there's now legislation around the country that will protect someone. So if I call 911 and I'm in the presence of a person who's overdosing, even if there are drugs around, uh, I will be protected so I will not be arrested. And that's something that's not so common sense 
of course, we didn't want to arrest someone and discourage them from calling 911 to save someone's life. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I know uh, New York State has had the Good Samaritan Law for several years now. North Carolina has it, too. Several states have it. Yeah. Yeah, there are about seven now, including the District of Columbia, but there are people you know, in many of these states that don't have them lobbying for them now. Um, again, it's just resistance. The only people that can resist something like that are people who really are ignorant or who in some ways are sort of the fear-mongering. You know, it's this idea that if we allow anything that accepts the fact, that acknowledges the fact that there are people who are addicted who are going to be using drugs and we want to save their lives, uh, it, it's... You know, it's, it's this old way of thinking, and it is a incredibly destructive way of thinking. It's also a very mm-hmm. heartless way of thinking. It's this idea that, that, you know, that people who are using, who have an illness, who have the illness of addiction, uh, deserve any of the things that we know that we could do to help them uh, unless they're going to do it by our rules, which is to stop using completely, which we know is very is unrealistic for people to do, at least in the short term for many people. It can take a long time, as you suggested before, for people to get sober uh, and to stay clean. Uh, so in the meantime, we want to do everything we can to help them stay alive, first of all, and also stay, of course, as healthy as we can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's unbelievable some of the things you'll read on the on the internet if you start reading people making comments and they say, you know, the best way to get rid of drug addiction is to have everybody overdose and die. It's like, you know, yeah. it's just unbelievable. The attitude, yeah, yesterday you know, I wrote something about the yeah, yesterday I read something about the Insight project up in Vancouver, which is a safe injection site. And it's a pretty remarkable program that has basically it allows people who are addicted IV users to come in, get clean needles, and not only get clean needles, but to inject um, at the site itself. And there's somebody there watching them and making sure that they're okay. And they've had uh, a number of overdoses recently, uh, I think about maybe 20 over the last month or so. And it's because people are getting heroin up there that is laced with, um, I believe it's fentanyl. It's a, and and you know, obviously it's potentially lethal, but because they're in the safe injection site, there are nurses and clinicians who are saving their lives. So I was writing about this and saying, you know, where are the safe injection sites in America? We need them here. And some of the reactions are exactly what you said. I mean, somebody wrote, you know, calling me every single name that he could fit in the tweet <laughs> and saying, um, you know, people who are shooting drugs deserve to die. Um, and uh, anyone who is uh, well, as he said, encouraging them, which of course is not what anybody's doing. It's, it's just facing reality that people have this um, illness and that they need help and we don't want them to die. We want them to get a chance. Um, we want them to give them every opportunity to you know, to live their lives the longest and as healthy lives possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just, you know, people don't know. If you get to know drug users, you know, I've worked in needle exchange. I've gotten to know drug users. And, you know, not everybody that uses heroin is addicted in the first place. And, you know, they're, they're people. They're human beings. They're just like us. You know, when you treat drug users like human beings, uh, they act like human beings. They just really appreciate it. I mean, they're just more, they're just people. Yeah, the people and the people who are suffering. And so, I, I, you know, uh, it's not, 
people have this idea. When my son became addicted at first, until I became educated, until I understood about you know this disease, about what happens in the brain of people who are addicted, how people who are addicted process drugs differently, about the mechanisms related to withdrawal, um, I thought they was like a lot of other people. I thought you know my son was just a selfish kid, narcissistic. All he wanted to do was get high. He didn't care about anybody or anything. Um, of course, now I know that you know, my son was out there. He was not out there having fun. It was not about being high and having a good old time. He was in enormous pain, and his life was terrifying to him. It was incredibly dangerous. And all he wanted to do was to stop using. Um, but he couldn't. He couldn't do it until he got help. And it took him a long time. It took him, you know, 10 years of being in and out of recovery until he finally... Um, uh, you know, it's been selling now for about six years. Um, so this idea that you know, that these are somehow this is somehow related to immorality or people that are weak who have no willpower, um, it's just wrong, and it's a really dangerous way that we uh, think about addiction in this country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't treat cigarette smokers that way. Well, we don't put people in prison for buying cigarettes or selling cigarettes in the first place. Uh, but, you know, if we did, uh, cigarettes would be the same scourge as heroin is because they're extremely addictive. I mean, I had a 35-year-long cigarette habit, but I was very addicted by the end when I quit. And it was, you know, it was not an easy job. And it's actually that cigarette addiction is the hardest one to quit, according to uh, all the epidemiological studies out there. Yeah, I hear that as well. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and it's uh, cigarettes and, and alcohol, too. Um, and, I mean, it doesn't matter what, what, what the drug is. I mean, the difference, of course, between cigarettes and, and alcohol and other drugs is that uh, the cigarettes, they're, they're as addictive or more addictive. They're lethal, but usually the toll they take, it takes a long, much longer um uh, people who are shooting heroin or who are drinking to excess, binge drinking, whatever, they're, they're uh, likelihood of ending up in the emergency room, overdosing, dying, or ending up in prison, of course, is much higher. Um, but it's all the same. I mean, these all these addictions. It's, it's a brain disease, and therefore, once we know it's a disease, we know that it's not about chastisement. It's not about you know, yelling at people. It's not about blaming them. It's really about getting them the help that they need uh, so that they can get um, get off whatever their drug is or drugs and uh, they the kind of life that they want to lead. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, we could uh, reduce uh, overdose from heroin a lot if we would have heroin-assisted treatment like they do in Switzerland or Great Britain, you know, where people aren't doing well with methadone or other treatments. You know, they they give them pharmaceutically pure measured doses of heroin and they don't have to buy it on the street. They don't have to engage in criminal activities. They don't. They know what they're shooting. They're shooting the right dose. They're not at danger of overdose. They're actually shooting under supervision. So, you know, if we could have something sane like that in this country too. Well, the whole point about the uh, in safe injection sites, even for people who don't believe in harm reduction of any kind, they don't believe in needle exchange. They don't believe in you know, methadone. They don't believe in suboxone. They don't believe in they don't believe any of that stuff. I mean, there's another practical reason for people to get on board and to support this. 
Um, when this safe injection site was opened in Vancouver, it was opened in a neighborhood that was really defined by violence and drug use. Um, and still, there were people in the community who felt that you know, somehow sanctioning drug use by allowing the safe injection site to open was going to uh, you know, increase drug use. It was going to increase overdose, increase death, and increase crime. And it did all the opposite of those things. Um, because people had a safe place to go to get um, to be when they were getting high. First of all, they were protected because somebody was there watching them in case they were using a bad drug or they were taking too much of a drug, and there was another problem. So that there was uh, fewer people were were overdosing and fewer people were dying. But the other thing that happened is um, the crime, the, the area became safer. There was a place, safe place for people to go. There was not violence related to drug use uh, on the streets as much. Um, and uh, the other thing that happened, though, that was really significant is also more people ended up going into treatment because when you have people in a safe place where they aren't being shunned and they aren't being judged um, and they aren't being told to do something that they are not physically or emotionally at the moment or psychologically capable of doing, which is you know, don't use drugs. If you want to come in here as long as you're clean, well, you know, they would come in possibly if they were clean, but they're not clean and they can't get clean. But when you have somebody in a place like that where they are safe and with people who are trained with compassionate therapists, counselors, it's then possible to gently guide people who are not interested in treatment or not willing or not at least able yet to imagine getting into treatment to indeed get into treatment because there are people who are skilled to do that. So there are so many people. I mean, there are so many reasons uh, to offer the whole range of harm reduction strategies. Uh, they save lives in the short term and they get more people into recovery in the long term. So as I say, you sort of don't have to be like this compassionate, you know, person who even understands or care about, cares about this stuff um, to support this. You only have to have a sense that, you know, if we want safer cities, if we want to save money on healthcare, we don't want as many people in the emergency room, we don't want as much crime, criminal justice system. Um, all these policies and all these practices, uh, the more that we offer, the, you know, the better we're going to do, not just for people who are addicted, not just for their families, but for the, you know, the culture overall, the society overall. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, Insight actually has a good setup because I know they have the safe injection and the needle exchange on the first floor, and then the upper floor is the treatment. So if people decide they want treatment, they can just go upstairs. That's right. That's pretty great. And there's nothing like that in this country. No, there's nothing like that. But I do know from working in needle exchange that a lot of people that would not engage in services, um, you know, because they were accepted in the in the needle exchanges, and you know, most of them have a drop-in space where they can hang out and talk. And you know, after a while, people would decide, hey, maybe I want to make a change. And people would uh, ask me about treatment. They would ask, you know, about buprenorphine, about methadone, or about abstinence-based treatments. And, you know, they weren't asking anybody else about that. That's right. And also, you know, even without a safe ejection site, needle exchange, people do uh, have a safe place to go. And we do have people to go to ask for help. And I've been at needle exchange programs at methadone clinics as well. Where it's not just about giving someone a clean needle or or of methadone. It's about being there to help people with whatever they need. Sometimes it's with housing, sometimes it's with um, 
other healthcare issues. You know, people have you know, physical illnesses still, or they've got abscesses, infections, whatever it is. Uh, it's a support. It's a net, it's a safety net for people who are on the fringes because of their addiction to help them in many, many, many ways. It's not only about um, either staying clean or about staying uh, safe with safe uh, with clean needles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of the exchanges have user groups where people can, uh, you know, talk about where they're at with their drug use. They can talk about whatever they want to say. They, they're not going to be, you know, shamed and told that, you know, you, you're not clean, so you shouldn't talk. If they, you know, they can talk about anything. They can talk about being safer, about if they want to cut back, if they want to stop using. Uh, you know, everybody is, you know, we meet them where they are at. Right. That's exactly right. It's a, um, you know, I, I, I guess the hopeful news is that everything is changing very, very slowly, way, way, way too slowly, but it is changing. People understand now more and more that addiction is a disease. They understand that there's not one way to treat people who are addicted. They understand that harm reduction is part of of uh, of, of treatment of, of treatment of this disease. Um, it's uh, you know the stigma is enormous still, but it is evaporating slowly. One of the ways uh, that this is uh, changing, unfortunately, is because there's a grassroots movement around the country of people who are affected by this disease. And unfortunately, the reason that many of these people are so involved, is so angry, and so determined to change things is because they have lost someone they love um, to addiction, overdose, mostly, in fact, uh, parents. I go around the country and I meet these parents who've lost their kids, and they are enraged. And rather than hiding in shame the way that, that it's happened often in the past, is they've come out and organized other parents and other people in the communities that are affected, and they are starting organizations. They're lobbying politicians. They are raising money for research to make treatment available to people. They're lobbying for some of the kinds of legislation that we talked about before, the 911 laws to make Narcan available. Um, things are changing, but in the meantime, you know, people are dying, a person is dying every 19 minutes uh, just because of the overdose on uh, prescription medications and opiates. Overall, mm-hmm. um, 112,000 people a day, I mean, I'm sorry, 112,000 people a year are dying because of addiction. And, um, you know, it's the number three killer in America, and yet, you know, it's a, it's a problem that people in this country don't want to talk about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, if people want to look in our archive, we've uh, had interviews with people from a few of these groups. We've had we've interviewed GRASP, that grief recovery after substance passing. We interviewed Denise Cullen from GRASP. We also interviewed uh, Moms United to End the War on Drugs. So these are some really good grassroots uh, movements here that are really fighting to make some changes. It's there is hope. Um, you know, there's there's more and more support for ending the war on drugs, which of course does so much harm that it's um, inconceivable. It's not just the harm, the amount of money that's been spent, but it really is related to a lot of the lives that have been lost and continue to be lost. There's more and more support for you know saying laws around marijuana, so we're not going to be um, we're not going to be criminalizing people who have. Uh, a health-related problem, um, and so, you know, 
strategy is prevailing, but uh, things are still to change. So tell me a little bit about evidence-based treatments. What are some of the evidence-based treatments out there that are available? There are a whole range of them. Um, there's a doctor in a researcher in uh, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, who has compiled a list of, of evidence-based treatments. Many of them are behavioral-based, so cognitive behavioral therapies, um, a whole range of those, uh, motivational interviewing, dialectical behavioral treatments. A lot of them are about uh, training someone who's addicted to understand that they have this disease and then to understand the components of the disease so that uh, they can do things consciously that in the past would have been unconscious. Uh, in the past, um, walking by a neighborhood that's associated with drug use or walking by a bar or, or a smell of, uh, of you know, of, of, of needle, I'm not a needle, a smell of, uh, of, of, um, I can't think of the word, a collider, because it was used to, you know, to, to indict uh, a, a drug. Um, you know, whatever things are triggers, I mean, in the past, a person would experience a trigger like that, and without even thinking about it, the craving would kick in, and very likely they would relapse. Um, part of these, some of these behavioral treatments, positive behavioral treatments, train people so that they become aware that they are encountering a trigger, responding to a trigger, and then teaching them ways to diffuse the trigger so that rather than leading to relapse, it will lead to a conscious choice, a choice point, so that uh, a person can say, oh, okay, this is what's happening, this is why I'm feeling, my heart's beating, my, I'm breathing hard, I realize that I, you know, I'm dying to go score, but I'm going to go take a walk, or I'm going to go... Uh, run, or I'm going to call a friend, or I'm going to go to a 12-step meeting, whatever it is. Um, so there are <clears throat> there are these uh, uh, treatments like that. There are also more and more effective pharmacological, uh, pharmacological treatments. And one of the ways that we have, there's been this uh, antiquated view in the addiction treatment world that we don't treat drug problems with drugs, but as it turns out, we do. And we do very effectively treat some addictions with medications, uh, and so some of the evidence-based treatments out there include for opiate addiction, you know, uh, suboxone, methadone, I mean, these, these drugs that have been rejected because they are anathema to the way that some people think about um, about treatment with addiction, you know, people believe that you know, abstinence, abstinence only and that being on any sorts of medications um, means that you know, a person is an abstinent, but that's not true. I mean, we want people to be safe. We want them to be healthy. We want them to be uh, able to go forward in, in rebuilding their lives. And so, you know, whatever it takes. I mean, methadone, I've been to methadone clinics. Methadone clinics, first of all, save lives. Second of all, they allow people to rebuild their lives and oftentimes to embrace different forms of treatment, uh, more and more different kinds of treatment, also to deal with other problems that they might have, whether they're practical problems in relationships, being self-supporting, housing, um, and also psychological problems. You know, people who are addicted often have bipolar disorders, schizophrenia, depression, anxiety disorders. Uh, so so uh, these medications are enormously helpful for many addicts. Um, yes, 
you know, people object to them because they're sometimes abused, they're sometimes uh, addictive on their own, and of course those things are true, which is why it's important that people work with addiction doctors or psychiatrists, psychologists who know what they're doing. Um, there are uh, different kinds of group uh, therapies that are effective. There are a lot of individual therapies that are effective. Uh, part of the way of treating addiction is recognizing the fact that most addicts are not using their their only problem isn't their drug or drugs of choice, but there are a range of other problems that if we don't address as well, um, we're not going to address their addiction. If you have a person who's got severe depression and they're using as a way to medicate for their depression, and they've done that for the course of many, many years, often since they were teenagers, um, they've never known what it like. They don't even know that they have depression, never mind you know, what they've done. Is every time this, these feelings that become overwhelming to them hit, um, their way of dealing with it is to get high. So you get someone sober, you get them off drugs for the first time, maybe ever, or in years, or, or, or whatever, and then suddenly they're feeling so they're sober, and you know, with this promise, okay, you're sober, you're going to feel great, your life's going to be perfect, it's everything you want. Well, that's not exactly what happens. In fact, that's definitely not what happens, because what happens in a case like that, someone's clean for a minute, and suddenly this depression that they've been pushing aside hits. And... Um, you know, that's often why people relapse. So we also have to recognize that addictions don't exist in a vacuum. And many people, if not most people, have to be treated for whatever else is going on. So if a person does have addiction and depression, uh, we need to treat their depression as well and have to be done simultaneously. So part of the evidence-based approach to treating addiction is to realize that addiction usually is... Um, is, is it does co-occur with other problems, and sometimes they are psychological disorders, and sometimes there are other problems. The people who are living in incredibly violent, dangerous neighborhoods uh, are much more likely to relapse. So part of evidence-based treatment is to be able to treat people's environments as well, to get them social supports if they need it, to get them counseling if they need it. If they're living in a home with dysfunction, to get family counseling. If there's a home where there's violence, uh, we have to protect people who are in that situation, children. So, um, you know, there's a lot we can do. Uh, and uh, the tragedy is that we are doing it. In so few cases are we actually giving people the treatment that they need. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you watch television, you know, you get the impression all you have to do is get someone in a 12-step program or get them go to an AA meeting, NA meeting, and they'll be cured, and that twelve step is good for everyone. But is that true? Is twelve step good for everyone? Um, no, um, it's not. I mean, I mean that's a really dangerous attitude. That uh, one of the things that I see over and over again are parents telling me that their kids went into treatment programs, rehab, and basically, or or they went to counselors and they were sent to twelve step meetings. But more often, these people are sent into treatment. And really, the treatment program did one thing. Um, they gave these kids chores and punishment if they didn't do the chores, but the treatment was involved in 12-step meetings. So they, you have to go to a meeting every day. And, of course, we all know that 12 steps are really useful for many people. The idea that the 12 steps are the only treatment, first of all, it's wrong. There are many other treatments that work. And second of all, it really is dangerous because then you get people who don't respond to the 12 steps or who reject them for whatever reason who feel like they can't be helped and 
so they give up on the fact that they can be helped. I mean, you've got these kids, and you are putting adolescents who have you know, serious drug addictions to any drug you can think of, often apologize. I mean, people often are addicted to many, many different drugs at the same time. And you tell them, you know, these kids, to, that they have to go to these meetings with people they can't relate to, turn their life over to a higher power, admit they're powerless. I mean, what teenager, even teenager who's not on methamphetamine or heroin, uh, is going to admit they're powerless or wants to turn their life over or will agree to turn their lives over to anyone? So we have to recognize the fact that 12 steps are not good treatment for many people, and we have to have available to them other treatments. Uh, the 12 steps have, you know, it's not about knocking the 12 steps. The 12 steps have, were the only game in town for many, many decades. If you had an addiction problem and if you wanted to get well, there was not much else to do. So you went to meetings, and either they worked for you or they didn't, but there were not very many alternatives. So the 12 steps were you know, sort of this brilliant option for people, and they were free, they are ubiquitous. I mean, it's sort of miraculous that you can go to any city in the country, or any city, most cities in the world, and find meetings going on every single day. Um, so, you know, there's something very profound about Alcoholics Anonymous and other 12-step groups, but it's dangerous when we suggest or insist that they're the only way for people to get sober and to stay sober. Um, they aren't, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and you know, we need to recognize that, and the whole treatment system needs to recognize that. Uh, sometimes mm-hmm. 12 steps could be part of a, a, a broader treatment program, a treatment plan that includes many things. And sometimes the 12 steps, you know, people have to understand that some people are not helped by the 12 steps. And in fact, they're harmed when they're told that 12 steps are the only game in town. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, from my own experience, I mean, I was one of the people that reacted very badly to the 12 steps. You know, um, you know, I, I remember when I was in treatment, I was being told um, that I have a God-shaped hole in my heart and I'm trying to fill it with alcohol instead of God. And it's like, give me a fucking break, please. You know, this was, you know, I, I was one of the people, you know, I got worse after that. And the worst part of it was that I was blamed for not getting the 12 steps instead of, you know, being told, you know, you need to do something else. Well, I mean, I found uh, something else on my own eventually. I, I went to the library and kept uh, going through books and books and books until I found something that was different and Boy, that was 20 years ago, so it wasn't easy to find. But the only thing, about the only person writing back then was Stanton Peel, and that's whose books I found. And you know, it, yeah, there's other things that you can do. But you know, people shouldn't be blamed. You know, if the 12 steps aren't working for you, that doesn't make you bad. That makes the 12 steps a bad fit for you. That's right. And um, yeah, the whole idea that people are blamed is unconscionable. And you've got a person who's got this illness. You're telling them that you have to do things one way. You know, if you're not right, but there's only one way. But you're telling them. And then they don't do it your way. No, it's the fault of these treatment providers who are telling them that there's only one way. Uh, it is the system that is really rigged. And it's rigged so that people who are the treatment professionals, so-called professionals, can take credit when someone does well. 
but they have no responsibility. They bear no responsibility when someone doesn't. It's their fault. They didn't follow the steps. They didn't go to meetings. Well, maybe that's a person mm-hmm. who is not going to follow the steps and is not going to go to meetings and they need a different kind of help from you if you purport to be a specialist, someone who is trying to treat uh, addiction. So blaming the patient, blaming the victim is common, but it is unconscionable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about prevention. What are some good ways to uh, prevent drug addiction from occurring? First thing that we have to do is understand we focus on drugs. Um, don't use drugs. Drugs are dangerous. Um, stay away from drugs. Drugs, you know. But drug use is not about the drugs themselves, at least most of it isn't. Um, problematic drug use is almost the result of other problems. It is a symptom. So I think that if we're ever going to actually be effective preventing drug use, we have to recognize that. And we have to recognize that, you know, scolding people, locking them up, threatening them, punishing them, punishing them isn't going to help. What we need to do is understand, you know, what is it that is causing a particular individual to use? Um, is it stress? I mean, we know that there's all this research that shows that stress in a person's life is um, tied to the likelihood that they're going to use drugs in the first place and to become addicted. So what is stressing somebody out? Um, you know, there's, a, there's normal stresses that everyone encounters, but then there are stresses that are toxic and that overwhelm. And some people can tolerate certain kinds of stresses and then that others can't. So we have to recognize the fact that, you know, what's causing someone to use? Does someone have depression? Are they using because they're trying to medicate for their depression? Bipolar disorder. Are they living in a situation where the stress is overwhelming uh, and drugs or alcohol appear to be a way out um, at least for the moment. So unless we start to recognize the reasons people use uh, and to treat them, uh, we're not going to get anywhere. So if we understand that this person is living in a situation that is dangerous uh, and so they're using, um, or they're likely to use, you know, uh, telling them no is not going to help. What we have to do is figure out how we can uh, get them a safe place to live. If they're living in a family, if a person is living in a family where there's a lot of discord, where parents are arguing all the time, where children are put in the middle of warring parents, uh, those kids are much more likely to use drugs. Uh, Makes sense. You know, they're living in an incredibly stressful environment. It's like living in a war zone for them. Um, So getting high is a way to get out of it. So what we want to do is help that family recognizing that recognize that there's a problem and get help for that problem with family therapy, with parent effectiveness training, whatever it is. Um, uh, if we deal with the problems that are causing drug use, then we're going to be successful preventing drug use. Um, and until we do that, you know, we're not going to be any more successful than we've been for the last you know, several decades where we've been trying all these antiquated um, prevention strategies that just don't work. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we need to make some really major social changes of getting people, uh, you know, proper housing, decent place to live, uh, proper education, good education for everyone, uh, you know, good employment, a decent income available for everyone, you know, these kind of major liberal type social changes, which uh, I don't see, I don't see the, us moving that direction anytime soon. 
Yeah. Right. Fortunately. Um, would seem yeah, to I'm me sorry. To... You, you, you cut off there? Oh, you're not hearing me? Yeah. Um, I couldn't hear that last part. That we... I'm sorry. Yeah, that would seem to me to be the major thing that would, uh, you know, make changes. But, uh, you know, there's no movement in the U.S. really to make major social changes to eliminate poverty these days. I don't see it happening. But that would be the no, most exactly effective thing to do. Yeah, what's happening is the opposite. Is that programs, social programs that are designed to help the people, those among us who have the most hard time in life because they have they don't have access to insurance, they don't have access to health care, they don't have access to good education, they don't have access to safe housing. I mean those are those social services are being cut. Uh the last you know, the very people who need our help the most are depriving them of it, and those are people that are incredibly vulnerable to many, many problems, including addiction. Um, you know, we put kids in really stressful environments in school, and, you know, we're surprised if they don't stay in school. Uh, we're surprised if they leave school and they go get high. Uh, if, on the other hand, you know, there are experiments going on in, in, in cities, in southern San Francisco, I visited, where they have really conscientious efforts that are being supported by the city itself and also other organizations throughout the city, private and public, to make schools really safe, welcoming, to offer not just, you know, the three R's, but also psychological support, places where kids can go and not only be safe and not only get at the beginnings, at least, of an education, but also if they're dealing with a problem at home, if there's been a loss in the home, someone has died, there's a divorce, there's other violence, there's um, other addiction in the home. You know, there's places in these schools where kids are helped by trained counselors, and there's a whole climate that is created in these schools that, you know, helping someone get psychological help, um, it's not about weakness, it's not about telling on a friend, it's about caring about someone that you care about. So if you go to a party on the weekend and you see one of your friends is getting so drunk that they're in danger of becoming, you know, passing out, getting alcohol poisoning, uh, ending up in the emergency room. You know, it's, it's, you're not getting in trouble by telling a counselor at your school. What you're doing is you're saying, I'm really worried about this person and I really care about them. And when the counselor makes a very gentle uh, approach to the kid and says, you know, you're not in trouble, I'm not going to do anything to you. I can't make you do anything. I just want to tell you that one of your friends really cares about you and is worried about you. You know, will you talk to me a little bit for a while about what's going on in your life? Um, those kinds of programs can make the difference between, not just between addiction and not addiction, but between a life is on a path toward a you know, healthy sort of future, self-sustaining self, uh, a person who feels self-worth is able to have positive relationships compared to a person who is going to go into this, this you know, this spiral of, of uh, downward spiral that can lead to addiction, sometimes suicide, sometimes homelessness, you know, this bleak, bleak, bleak future. Um, so, you know, we have every uh, motivation to try to help people in every way we can, as early as we can in their lives, uh, with as many social supports as we can. Okay. Well, I think we're going to come to a close pretty soon. But first, uh, tell us, do you have any projects uh, down the road that you'd like to talk about a little bit? 
Uh, well, I've, you know, it's certainly did one of my, you know, the things I care about the most are the things we're talking about today, and I really want to continue to try to talk about this and raise this conversation uh, in communities around the country with politicians to try to get more support for prevention, quality prevention, prevention that actually works, and also for treatment, making treatment accessible to more people. So that's sort of one of my primary um, uh, goals, and I continue to work on that. I'm also, you know, a journalist. I write about all kinds of things. I did an interview last night about uh, some of the issues we're dealing with in this country related to the Middle East. I've got, um, I'm doing some writing about about politics, I'm writing about uh, other health issues, I write about art, uh, I'm looking into uh, writing a new book that's going to be tracing some of America's drug problems, um, and also some of the social movements that we have now to their roots back into the 60s. Uh, so anyway, doing a lot of, uh, of different things, but still the thing that feels the most important to me is uh, continuing this conversation about uh, drug use and addiction going so that we can help people who need our help. And what are the names of your books and where can we find you online? Well, the books that are, uh, the recent books that have to do with uh, drugs and uh, alcohol addiction are the first that I wrote was about our family's struggle when my son became addicted. It was about addiction itself, but also what it is like to be in a family of somebody who's addicted because anybody who's been there knows that it is hell. Uh, and that book is called Beautiful Boy. And then the book that I wrote afterward, which is about how we can help people who are addicted in this country and help our nation overall deal with the problem related to drug use and addiction. That book is called Clean, Overcoming Addiction and Ending America's Greatest Tragedy. Um, and both of those books are available, I think, in bookstores on Amazon. I have links to all this on my website, which is um, davidchef.com. I'm on Twitter, David underscore chef. Uh, and, you know, every place that, and one of the great things about being involved in this world, uh, not anything I ever planned, but because I was sort of dragged into it when, you know, I learned about addiction the hard way when my son became addicted, is I realized that there's an incredible community of people who are struggling with this disease and who are also because of that struggle, are very, very open, are very committed, are very compassionate, very all about supporting one another so people don't have to hide in the shadows and be isolated, um, that we can all support one another. Um, so anyway, I'm grateful um, that, you know, that you're doing this show and that there's a place for people to come and get more information and to continue you know, thinking through what they want to do, how they want to deal with this. So, Ken, thank you. Well, thank you very much for being our guest this afternoon, David Chef. And everyone, we will be back with another show in two weeks because next week is the big harm reduction conference in Baltimore. I'll be presenting. Our presentations will be online afterwards, but we'll see you all again in two weeks. So thank you, everyone, and goodbye. Thank you so much.